So Heavenly Father, we just come before you tonight, Lord, and we humbly submit ourselves to the authority of your word. Lead us and guide us tonight, we pray, Lord God. Come through for us, Lord, because we know you're a God who comes through for his people. Show us, Lord, what you want to reveal to us this night at this point in history. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, well, I've got a question for you. Have you ever met someone who said, if God's real, how come he doesn't just show up and appear right in front of me? You ever known someone like that? Yeah, I think we all do. I'd be surprised, actually, if you haven't ever met someone like that. Uh, I run into people like that all the time. It's an attitude that's really common on the street when we're witnessing. In fact, some of the conversations usually go something like this. Uh, I'll meet an individual and say, and we'll talk about God, and he'll say, oh, I don't believe in God. And we'll ask him, really, what's your reasoning? How did you come to that conclusion? And the story goes something like this. Well, a long time ago, I prayed a prayer. I said, God, if you're real, appear right in front of me. And no one appeared. And so therefore, there's no God. Uh, well, there's obviously some major flaws with that line of thinking. Besides the obvious fact of us as a human being trying to order God around, besides all that, what that's asserting is that if God doesn't do what I want him to do, when I want him to do it, then he doesn't exist. And in fact, this reduces the, the concept of an all-powerful, all-knowing being who created everything, reduces that down to a concept of something more like a magical genie who just appears when you want him to and gives you what you want and then disappears so you can do whatever you want. The reason no one showed up is because genies don't exist. Now, in reality, this person wasn't really looking for God. What they were looking for is a reason to disprove God. And the only God that they would accept is one that they could control, one that they were in charge of. Reality, they wanted to be God. So where does that leave us? What about us? How can we know if there's a God? Well, Scripture tells us if you search after God, you will find him. There is evidence for him. And tonight in our psalm, we're going to look at the psalm of David. And David is a man that we've studied here on Wednesday nights. And we've learned about his life. He spent a lot of time in the outdoors, under the stars at night, under the sun and the heat of the day. He was a shepherd as he grew up. He spent time on the run for years from Saul. And David knew God existed. He knew that even when he was lonely, he knew that even when he was in fear of his life, and so I must ask, how does David know? How did he know? Let's look at our text here and see how God reveals himself. Starting at verse one. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, 
like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and it makes its circuit to the other and nothing is hidden from its heat. Well, we're gonna stop there. This brings us to our first point. God reveals himself to us through his creation. In the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter one, we see the almighty God creating the heavens, speaking the heavens, in fact, into existence. And in our first verse here, we see the very same heavens now speaking to us about God's existence. Look at verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God. The Hebrew word used for God here is Elohim. And it's the exact same word used for God in Genesis. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth and that word represents the almighty, all-powerful creator God. David references that. Now, heavens in the text here, David Guzik points this out very nicely. He says, this isn't the spiritual heavens where God is enthroned. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the heavens of a blue sky or a night sky, what you can see when you simply look up. So let's look at verse one and let's see what they are saying, what they are doing. The heavens declare the glory of God. They are declaring. They are telling they're saying, they're displaying what? God's glory, God's existence, his eternal power and his divine nature can be clearly seen through what has been made, Romans chapter one. So at what time? When is this being displayed? Was this a one-time event just during creation? Is this something to look forward to when Christ comes again? Look at verse two, day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. Every day and every night since man has been on this earth, the heavens have been declaring God's existence and his glory. In fact, at any point in human history, any man of the past or woman of the past could simply look up and see the very proof that there is a God, which leads us to verse three. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. This answers the question of who? Who can hear this? Who can see this? The answer is anyone, anyone who can see, can look up and see God's handiwork being displayed and know there's a God, regardless of the language there's no need for translators. There's no need for a, a translation. In fact, even if you don't understand your own language that well, you can look up with the eyes God has given you, with the mind he's given you, and have enough proof that he says you can know he exists. Look at verse four. Their voice goes out into all of the earth. Their words to the end of the world. Where is this going out? Where can you see this? Do we have to go to the top of Mount Sinai to see this? Is this something in a particular range? No. This can be seen everywhere over the entire globe. Any point on earth, you can look up and see God being revealed in the heavens. Now, it's interesting because God can be revealed in any of his creation. 
All of creation testifies to him. But David focuses here on the heavens. Why? Because if David would have focused on a mountain range or on a river, though those do proclaim the glory of God, not everyone could see them. But here we're seeing that everyone, everywhere, at every time and any time in human history can see God revealed through his work. Let's look at the second part of verse four. It says, in the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun. So now we're going on just mere complexity. God didn't just create something complex and miraculous. He designed it to do something. He designed it with a purpose. Look at the purpose given here for the sun. The sun is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion. Can you imagine this earth without the sun? Can you imagine what that would be like? We know what would happen, right? Life could not sustain without the sun. It just wouldn't work. Could you imagine a wedding without a bridegroom? Wouldn't work. Can't have it, right? So what God's saying here is, look, God created these things for a purpose. They're complex, but they have a purpose and a reason. And when they do work, when they do do what they're designed to do, it's beautiful. Then you get the wedding. Then you get the sunrise and the sunset. Then you get what it's designed to do. And look at how he goes forth. He says, he says the sun is like a champion who's rejoicing to run his course. Now, I love this because he doesn't say he's like a champion having just run his course, is rejoicing in the fact that he won. He doesn't say that. He says, no, the sun is like a champion who's rejoicing at the fact that there's a course to run. That's what champions need. That's what they're designed to do. Champion doesn't need to be put on a shelf. Champion needs a course to run, and God has given that to each part of his creation. And when it all works together, it works beautifully. It gives us the light of day. It feeds us, it nourishes us. And in all this time, it declares God's glory. Now, I want to share a story with you. Back in 2005, I was attending Sacramento State University, and I was not walking with the Lord at that point in my life very regrettable, rebellious stage of my life. And I was taking a philosophy course, and it was a very hard instructor who was not a believer. And I was wrestling with this idea that if I was going to believe in God, it had to be what I would call by blind faith. Just, there's just no proof. I just got to, you know, just, okay, I'm just going to believe without any proof. And I remember him coming in one day to class, getting right to the board and saying, okay, I'm going to present an analogy for you. And maybe some of you have heard it. It's called the watchmaker analogy. Uh, Sir Isaac Newton uh, was said to have some sort of a start in it, but really uh, William Paley from Britain wrote a book in 1802 called Natural Theology that demonstrated this analogy. And our professor presented it. He said, imagine you are on a deserted island where no human being has ever stepped foot. And as you're walking along the beach, you look down, you see something shiny in the sand. So you reach down, you pick it up, you dust it off, and lo and behold, it's a wristwatch. Then he asked the class, how did that wristwatch get there? And so a flood of ideas started coming in. The first one I want to say was, you know, maybe it fell out of an airplane. 
you know, I don't know if it was the pilot that dropped it or out of cargo or wherever they were going with that. It was unlikely, but it still could possibly happen. Someone else said, well, maybe it floated there somehow. It got really in depth, you know, fell off a ship and somehow floated. And so the instructor waited patiently, nodding his head. And he said, so what you're saying is there was a watchmaker and somehow this watch found its way to this deserted island. And we all agreed. Yes, that's what we're saying. So then he posed to us, he said, how come nobody suggested that given enough time with the right circumstances, the waves pounding against the rocks in just the right way, the waves flowing over the sand at just the right momentum created the watch? And we had the exact same reaction. We laughed. We said, because it's absurd. Because it's absurd. And so he said, so I then pose to you, take a step back and look at the universe and tell me that is less complex than a watch. And I remember thinking at that point in time, I can't believe it. It's so simple. There's actually proof for God's existence by what he's made. It's right here in front of us this whole time. I was blown away. Hebrews 11.1 1, clarifies this. It says that faith, the faith that's needed for salvation, the faith that's needed to believe in God, is the evidence of things unseen. It's not just believing in something. It is evidence that God has given, and it is trusting in the God of the universe. Everyone knows that God has created this, that it didn't just pop out of nothingness. The Bible says that clearly. And you know, the Apostle Paul used this fact to his advantage when he went witnessing to the Gentiles. If we look at Acts chapter 14, I'll read it to you, starting at verse 15. Paul going to the Gentiles um, who were not raised, presumably, with the knowledge of God, who worshiped the creation instead of the creator, who had no knowledge, not raised in Judaism, not aware of his commands, he said this, he said, turn from worthless things to the living God, who made heaven and earth and sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has even shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. From there, he goes into the gospel. From there, people get saved. Acts 17, verse 24, he addresses another group of Gentiles. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. He used this argument and people believe, they agreed. Yeah, there's a God. We can Okay, we can see that. Yeah, everything came from something, somewhere, right? It didn't just happen by itself. So with all this proof, and if Scripture shows us that people know there's a God, then how come everyone does not believe? Well, we'll look at Romans 1, verse 21, and Paul explains it. He says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And I remember being on the street, talking with a young man. We we're going back and forth. And I remember 
just saying, okay, stop. Let's just stop. If I could stand here however long it took and present all the arguments for God, and if I could explain to you in a way that you would understand that there is a God, and you said, yes, that makes sense, I agree, would you leave everything and follow him? And his immediate response was, no way. No way. I want to do what I want to do. That's exactly what this verse is saying. The problem is not due to a lack of evidence on God's part. The problem is due to the hardness of heart on our part. So we can know there's a living God. We can know just by looking at the heavens that there's a God, he exists, he's powerful because he created all this, he's got an imagination, he's got divine attributes, we can even know his kindness, but we can't stop there. See, because we need to know who he is. We need to look deeper than that. And the way we do that is, be, is by looking to scripture. So let's look at verse seven through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. And by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. This brings us to our second point. God reveals himself to us through scripture. See, in scripture, we can see that this God, we can see who he is, what he is. More importantly, what he requires of us. We can see his love, we can see his longing for us, his patience, his kindness towards us. We can learn how to worship him. We can learn how to have a right relationship with him. All this only through scripture, not by just looking at the stars. See, if we fail to seek God out in scripture, we can see the general revelation of God in his creation, but if we stop there, it leads us to false ideas about him. That's why there's so many false religions in this world. Because all over the world, people know there's a God, but instead of consulting scripture, they make up in their minds what they think God is, how they expect him to be. We can't do that. We can't do that. So looking at scripture, David is describing the beauty of scripture, the importance of scripture, the authority of scripture, and if we look at scripture, we see in Genesis 1, not only did God create the heavens and the earth, but two chapters later in Genesis 3, something major happened. We sinned against this holy and righteous and all-powerful God. And as we learn about his holiness in scripture and his righteousness and what that is, we understand there can be no connection with holiness and sin. And so we see that he had to take a step back for our own good. Looking at verse seven, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now David switches from using the term Elohim, creator God, to the term Jehovah. 
which is covenant God. We see that even though we sinned, even though we broke the rules, God still went on to make a covenant with us. We see that he provided a plan of salvation for us. What an amazing God. Tell us more, right? Let's learn more. Let's dig deeper. Hebrew word for law there, the law of the Lord, is Torah. And today, in Judaism, that means the scrolls of the law, refers to the books of the law. But the actual Hebrew word means instruction or teaching. It can refer to all the instruction and teaching of God in Scripture. David's saying, all of God's instructions are perfect. And the Hebrew for perfect means complete, whole, entire, everything we need to know about God, we can find out in Scripture. See, the perfect God gave us a perfect law and he expected us to follow it perfectly because he's perfect, but we didn't. And so through Scripture, we learn that we need a perfect Savior. What is the result of Scripture in our life? Verse seven, it revives the soul. It revives the soul. The word for revives is brings it to life. It gives life to your soul. The sun can feed the food that we eat. The sun can give us vitamin D and all these other benefits, but it can't help our soul unless we realize what it is saying, proclaiming the glory of God who designed us. And from his lips, we get his word and his word feeds our soul. This is why it is important, Christians, for us to be in the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is living and active. It's not just a book. It is life from the, word, from the words from the one who is life. And it revives our soul. David goes on to say, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. Now, statutes are referring to that covenant law again, saying they're trustworthy. And the Hebrew word for trustworthy means faithful. It's the exact same word used in Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. See, something we need to know that David encourages us here in. He says, look, the word gives you life. But there's something else that word does. Hebrews 4.12, it penetrates us. It penetrates us to the very depths of our being, to our soul. It divides our soul and our spirit. It weighs the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. And we tell you, it's not always comfortable. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes it's offensive to our own self, our sinful nature. What? Me? Bad? Couldn't be. What David is saying is, listen, you can trust God. He is faithful. You can trust that though this is painful, though this hurts, it's not the wounds of someone attacking you. It is God doing surgery on you for your good to bring about healing. And it makes us wise in the Lord as we simply trust in him. Allow him to do his work. Verse eight, the precepts of the Lord are right. Precepts is, are like detailed instructions on everyday matters in life, situations. 
You know, in God's word, he gives us detailed instructions on how to handle things. So often in life, people are looking for how to respond to a situation, what to do in their next career move, all these things. What do they look to? The world looks at astrology, right? They look to the stars for signs. They look uh, to psychics. They look to all these other things. If we look to scripture, to God, what does this bring us to? It brings joy to the heart. In the first three ways that David has described scripture, God's word, the Bible, these are the results. He says, number one, it revives your soul. It brings you to life. Number two, it makes your mind wise. Number three, it makes your heart joyful. Second part of verse eight, the commands of the Lord are radiant. His commands, that word for radiant, pure, clear, clean, and they enlighten the eyes. What is he saying? He's saying God, through his word, allows you to see clearly good from evil. It's something you can't get from looking at the stars. Verse five, the fear of the Lord is pure. See, God is all-powerful. God is serious about holiness. God is serious about righteousness. And he's serious about sin. And he's serious about his love for us. And understanding that brings about a reverence in your life, in your heart towards God, moves you into Christian maturity and understanding God. Verse nine, the ordinances of the Lord are sure. And the Hebrew word for ordinances is that of like the decisions of a judge, like the judgments of a judge deciding a case. And the word for sure is firm or true. So when God judges something, when he says something is right, it's right. When he says something is wrong, it's wrong. And we can trust him in that. Now, what is the value in all of this, in God's word, in learning who he is, in discovering about his love for us, in discovering what he requires and asks of us? What is the value? David says it's more precious than gold and not just any kind of gold. It's more precious than much pure gold than lots and lots of all the gold you can think of, the best kind of gold. And what can gold do? It can, gold can help you in this life, right? It can make you comfortable in this life. It can give you what you want in this life, but it can't bring life to your soul. He says that God's word is sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. Honey is sweet, but honey from the source of honey, from the comb, it's even sweeter we have the word of God from his very lips. Verse 11, why is this so valuable? Why is this so important to know? Because by them, your servant is warned. It's the warnings in scripture that help us, that guide us. The warnings at first can be, again, offensive, can cut. What, God, are you saying I'm like that? What, God? That, that hurts, God. That hurts. I, I don't know. The warnings can be taken offensively, but why does someone in authority give warning? Think about that for a second. Why do we give warning? Someone in authority gives a warning because they have the authority to punish and they would rather not. They would rather you heed the warning and do what's right so they don't have to. 
We see that in Ezekiel, the word of God. Chapter 33, verse 11, God says, I do not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but I would rather they turn from their ways and live. There's warnings in scripture, see, because we know God is a judge and it warns us that he is returning to judge the world in righteousness. And he wants that day to go well for each one of us. In obeying his word, there is great reward. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 through 26, Paul talks about how much effort and strength people go through to run a race, how they prepare for it, how they discipline their bodies for it, and they do it all for a perishable wreath. He says, but what we're doing is eternal. It's imperishable. It's forever. Looking at verse 12, who can discern his own errors? God gave us a warning. David is thanking God for that warning. He's saying, after all, who can discern his own errors? In fact, that's why God gave us the law, the Ten Commandments, and the rest of his law and scripture. He gave us all of this to warn us. Galatians 3.19 says, that is why the law was given. Romans 7.7, 7, Paul says, you know, I would not have even known what coveting was. But the second I saw the law, do not covet, this thing arose, it awoken in me. It came to life. I realized, wow, I do this all the time. And God says, this is wrong. Where does this logically lead? Very next part, David says, God, I see you're perfect. I know you're real. I see who you are in your word. And now through the law, I see who I am. So he goes, there's only one way out for me. You are gonna to have to forgive me, God, of my faults. You, the perfect God, are the only one that can forgive me from my faults. When David sinned later in his life and he was confronted and he repented, he said, against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned against. Because though our sin does hurt others and affect others, there is one we will stand before and bear answer to and bear witness to for our life and account for our life, and that is God. And if God forgives us, the only perfect one, if he forgives us, then no one can hold anything against us. Romans 8.33 says that. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? We need to run to him. Proverbs 28.13 says, he who conceals his transgressions or sins will not prosper but he who confesses them and forsakes them will find compassion. David doesn't just stop there because what David only welcomed from a distance and what we see now revealed in scripture as Christ Jesus, our savior, our redeemer, the source of our forgiveness, God himself. What we see in him is not only does he forgive us of our sins as David asked, but David goes on and he says also, Keep me from willful sins, the sins that I know are wrong and I continue doing. God, I don't want to be one of those Christians or one of those people who just asks for forgiveness and then continues to live however I want. God, I want you to free me from sin. And isn't it wonderful that that is what Christ offers us? Freedom from, 
sin. He forgives our sins and he frees us from it. Then they will not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. God restores our life through Christ Jesus. The only way is through his forgiveness. And again, you cannot learn this merely by looking at creation. You can know God exists, but you have to seek his word. In closing, as David is saying all these things, he closes with this. He says, you know, God, this is my cry. Verse 14, may the words of my mouth and the meditations or thoughts of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord God. Because we can see the works of God's hands displayed for us, the sun rising in a sunrise, giving us light during the day and then setting. We can see the beauty he's created around us. We can see how perfectly, intricately, and complex it is. But we see also in Hebrews that God sees our works. He sees everything we do. David says, Lord, don't let me go down like this. Forgive me from my sins, keep me from willful sins, and then use me with a purpose like you use your creation. Use me to glorify your name, God. Don't just set me free and forgive me of my sins and then put me on the shelf. I want to be used by you, Lord God. I think this is the cry of anyone and everyone who has had their sins forgiven in Christ, who has been set free from the bondage of sin only in Christ. You know, Ephesians 2, verse 10 in the New Testament says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. David closes and says, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Lord, you are my rock. You are my foundation. You are my strength. And you're also my savior. David addressed God in the the first part of the division here at the very top. He said, Elohim, creator God. The second division, he says, Jehovah, covenant God. Can learn this about God, but there is something again that David could only welcome from a distance, but that we can see that God has another name and is seen through Jesus Christ. Jehovah is salvation. I think there are some things we can take away from this. Number one, we need to realize how important God's word is in our life. It brings us life, it revives our soul. Do we believe that? It gives us the ability to see clearly and distinguish good from evil. There's no other way to do that. Only through God's word. It reveals our savior. It reveals God's forgiveness and love for us that even though we sinned, he would still give us a covenant. He would still send a Messiah and he would still give us warnings because he wants us to come to him. Will you thank God for his warnings in scripture and overcome that initial response that we all have in the flesh to be offended? And will you realize that he warns us because he loves us? And will you demonstrate that thankfulness for those warnings 
by obeying his word. Let's pray. Father God, you are God. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through creation, through your very word, Lord God. You want to be known by us. You say that this is eternal life, to know the one true God in Jesus Christ, whom he sent. God, we long to know you. Thank you for this word tonight, Lord. Just lead us in our lives, Lord God, as we submit to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, we commit these things. Amen. Please stand for the closing song. Well, Carlin, I just want to say on behalf of the church, thank you so much for studying and praying for us and reminding us of the importance of being in God's word. Amen. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for tonight. We're, we're reminded that even the inanimate creation, it brings glory to you. And we're exhorted that, that in light of that fact, how much more should we, uh, living and breathing beings have, who have been called uh, out of darkness into your glorious light, who have been saved and, and washed by the blood of Jesus, how much more should we who are alive give praise and glory and honor to the King? That's our purpose on this earth. It's to glorify our great God and Savior. And so therefore, Father, we pray that you would help us to be a people who live by the book, a people who are in the Word of God, who are fascinated and, and are in love with your Bible, a people who just can't wait to crack open uh, a chapter and to, to, to drink it up and to eat it down and to meditate on it and then to live it out in our day-to-day -day lives. And so, Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray for everyone in here. I pray for those who are struggling to get in the Word, those who are bored of the Word, those who aren't reading the Word. I pray that you would change their heart tonight that you would give them a new heart and a new set of eyes and, and they would just see it in a different way, God. And they would understand, oh, this is the book that God uses to speak to my soul. We really want to live for you, Lord, and we need your help. We love you and as we go our way, Lord, we pray you'd bless us with your peace. And again, we remember our precious pastor. Pray you bless him. Love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. Have a great night. We'll see you on Sunday.